0: of us. It has been a busy, busy month uh, with the cantata and then Easter, and of course I, I really do appreciate Brent. Last week I called him Saturday and told him I had the flu, so he got ready at the last minute to preach last Easter, last week, and so I appreciate that, and then of course the yard sale. But before all of that, we've been looking at the book of Acts, and I want to return there this morning. In Acts 1 8, Jesus had said that when the Holy Spirit came, his people would receive power to be his witnesses. That is the theme of the entire book of Acts, the coming of the Spirit and the proclamation of the word. You know, throughout scripture, the Spirit has a variety of roles. He aids us in holy living through the fruit of the Spirit. He helps us to know God and his word. He works in our conscience to know and do what is right. He convicts of sin. He draws sinners to God. He enables us for service through providing gifts. But in the book of Acts, his primary work is witness, helping God's people tell others about Jesus and how they can be saved. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that is his primary role in your life as well. He wants to help and encourage you to tell others about the Lord. Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit came at the day, on the day of Pentecost. And that word began to be fulfilled. Acts chapter 2 through 7 show that they were really doing a pretty effective job of telling their countrymen in Jerusalem as thousands believed, including, Luke says, a large number of priests. But that wasn't all that Jesus said. They seemed to forget that he said, not only were you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but also in Judea, throughout the rest of your country, and in Samaria. That's where things got hard. The Samaritans were traitors. Descendants of Jews who had turned their back on their own people, compromised with the surrounding culture, and intermarried with pagans. Then they kept certain aspects of Judaism, of their religious beliefs, and they mixed it with beliefs from these other people, often having their own places of worship. They were despised as both half-breeds and heretics, So it's really not surprising that the early believers were very slow at reaching out to them because no self-respecting Jew would have anything to do with a Samaritan. And that's why even though Jesus had commanded his people to go, even after some time had passed, they were still stuck in Jerusalem and Judea. They didn't want to go beyond that. They refused to take the gospel to others and wanted to stay where it was safe and comfortable among other people who were like them, who shared their values and their history. Missions and telling others about the Lord, though, is not an option for the church or for us as believers. Jesus' command was to go and tell, go and make disciples of all people, not just stay where it's safe and comfortable. Acts chapter 8, that all begins to change. The walls of their prejudice and separation finally begin to come down. Persecution breaks out in the beginning of chapter 8, and suddenly they weren't comfortable anymore. Instead, it says that through persecution led by Saul, they began fleeing Jerusalem. And as they went, it says they naturally told people about the Lord wherever they went. Some, like Philip, went to Samaria. And finally, what Jesus had said in Acts 1.8 was beginning to happen among the Samaritans. And the first half of Acts chapter 8, sometimes referred to as the Samaritan Pentecost because the Spirit came upon them just as he came upon the Jews in Jerusalem. You know, Jesus never said we're only to care about or share the gospel with people we like, people we're comfortable with people who are like us, are easy to talk to. He simply said, go and tell. Because even the worst of sinners is someone that God loves and Jesus died for. And it's interesting that contrary to the views of our success-oriented culture, it wasn't success and prosperity that caused the expansion of the kingdom. It was persecution and difficulty. It was when the church got uncomfortable that people began telling others. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, your own backyard, not just in Judea, among your own people, not just in Samaritans, the people you hate, but he also said to the ends of the earth. That meant not only the Samaritans were to hear, but Gentiles, including those like the Romans who had their army occupying their capital and the rest of their country. And beginning in verse 26, of chapter 8 of Acts, Philip enters into a most unexpected conversation. It begins, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way back home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now in the ancient world, Ethiopia, sometimes called Cush, the king was considered to be an incarnation of the sun god, and the day-to-day operations of the kingdom was considered beneath them. So instead, it was the queen mother who was the true power of the kingdom. Candace isn't a name, it's a title for the queen mother. Being in charge of the treasury, this meant that this eunuch was her minister of finance, very influential person. And ancient Ethiopia isn't where Ethiopia is today, it's Sudan. Highly civilized culture for that day. Both the Greeks and the Romans considered it to be the ends of the earth. Suddenly, with the conversion of this man on his way back home, the conversion of Paul in Acts 9, the conversion of the Roman centurion and his family in Acts 10 and 11, which is called the Gentile Pentecost, and the words of Jesus are being fulfilled. They are now to be his witnesses, not Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not just in Samaria, but with Ethiopia and Rome to the ends of the earth. Luke says this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. He wasn't a Jew. In all likelihood, he is what would have been considered a God-fearer. It was a title that Jews used for Gentiles who were drawn to the faith of the Jews, who tried to keep the law, who worshipped the Lord, but they weren't fully converted Jews, which meant they also weren't fully accepted As a eunuch, this man could never be fully accepted because the law said because he was a eunuch, he had to keep his distance. He could visit the temple, but he couldn't enter it. He would always remain on the fringe, be excluded from the people of God, maybe better than other Gentiles, but still second class. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, he says, and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you were reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him, with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. How sad. This man had made a long, difficult trip to Jerusalem where he could worship at the temple but not enter it. And while he was in Jerusalem... No one stopped to tell him what the scriptures meant. No one bothered to tell him how he could be saved. You know, I don't think of any of the members of the church or its leaders realized what was happening or what they were doing. But a number of years ago, before we went to seminary and I became a pastor, Lola and I were in a church one Sunday worshiping. As a congregation, we sang God's praises, we offered up our prayers, the scriptures were read, an evangelistic message was preached. But when everyone stood for the invitation, no one seemed to see or understand what was happening. There was a young man there who no one knew or had seen before, and he was standing at the front by himself with a lost, confused expression on his face. No one approached him or said a word to him. He just stood there as people then picked up their stuff, headed to their cars. It turned out that this young man wanted to know how to be saved, but everyone else just wanted to go to lunch. A few of us, if we hadn't bothered to notice him and stopped to talk, we never would have heard his story. He just wanted to be saved. Someone to tell him that most were too busy. That was the situation of the eunuch in Jerusalem. He went there to find God, and he left without anyone bothering to tell him. How can I understand, he asks, unless someone explains it to me? His situation really isn't that different from most of the world around us. People lost in need of someone simply to tell them about Christ. People all around us. And if we don't bother to tell them, how are they ever going to know? How is it going to be different than this unit going to Jerusalem and going back home without a clue? Paul told the Romans, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone like us tells them? Internationally known and respected leader Samuel Escobar said, the church exists for mission. And, he said, a church that is only inward-looking is not truly the church. That's why every year we participate in things like the annual Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American missions, and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions, and the Sud-Nishikawa State Missions offering. Why we give each month a portion of our tithes and offerings to the cooperative program where churches like ours pool our resources so that we can be his witnesses, not just in Jerusalem or Judea, but Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We give so that people like Philip can go and tell others how to be saved. And that's why right, there's 10 of us that will be going to Taiwan in a couple of months, to work with the church there to help some unchurched children in Taipei hear about Jesus and how they can be saved. Oswald Chambers said, The subject matter of missions is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the purpose that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. While Luke goes on, As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Previously, he hadn't heard. He didn't know. But now he heard and he accepted. Why shouldn't I? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. The key question, not just for the eunuch, but for us as well, is in verse 36. Why shouldn't I? In this case, why shouldn't I be baptized? What, what's stopping me from being saved? What is stopping you from being saved if you have not accepted the Lord as Savior? Baptism, of course... Doesn't save us. It's a identification with Christ—a saying that His death and resurrection applies to me. That I join with Him in His death and burial and resurrection. In Scripture, the pattern is to identify with Christ because He identifies with us. That's what baptism is about. And if you have never committed your life to Christ, it's a key question. For you to consider, given what God is offering you, his love and mercy and forgiveness and new life and eternity, why shouldn't you be saved? What's stopping you? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, that he was buried and on the third day rose again as Scripture proclaims? Why shouldn't you be saved? Why shouldn't you accept him? What's stopping this man was ignorance. How can I understand unless someone takes time to explain it? But once he explained it and he understood, why can't I join too? Are you a believer? Are you saved? Why shouldn't you be a part of God's family and identifying with him? Are you saved? Why shouldn't you be baptized and following in that step? Why shouldn't you unite with his people? Why shouldn't you serve and use the gifts God has given you? In a moment, we sing the hymn of invitation as an opportunity like that with the Ethiopian eunuch to ask the question, why shouldn't I be a part of what God is doing here? Now, that continues to be a major barrier for people. No one takes the time to explain what it means to be saved. Is there someone in your life that simply needs someone like you to take the time? Why shouldn't you tell them? In a small town in, called Glendale Springs in the mountains of North Carolina, there's a small church there known as the Church of the Frescoes. Within the building, there are a number of frescoes that have been painted on the walls, but one in particular stands out that covers the entire wall behind the pulpit. It was done by artist Ben Long. It's his depiction called The Last Supper. It's filled with color and details. Jesus is sitting with his disciples around the table for the Last Supper. And you would expect that Jesus would be the central focus of that painting, but he's not. He's prominently portrayed, but the central object of the entire picture is an empty stool right in the middle, sitting across from Jesus. The artist was communicating that there's an open invitation. The place is vacant. Why shouldn't you come and sit at the table with him? Why shouldn't you be a part of God's work and God's kingdom? It's an invitation to come join the family to come and be saved. And it's an invitation we share week by week, and this morning as we stand in a moment to sing our invitation, it's an invitation for you to simply consider, if you have not done so, why shouldn't you receive the gift of eternal life that God offers this morning? Or if you've received it, why shouldn't you take that next step a following in baptism? Or why shouldn't you unite with this congregation as we serve the Lord together? Or why shouldn't you offer up the gifts that God has given you to serve Him? Why shouldn't you be a part of it? That's the invitation. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and we will find rest for your souls. And that's what He offers this morning. So that's our invitation for you this morning. Why shouldn't you be a part of that? We're going to ask the worship team to come as we sing our hymn of invitation and commitment. And if you would all stand as they come, we'll have a word of prayer and then open it up for as an invitation time as we prepare also partake to partake together in the Lord's Supper. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that the road is open, the door has been open, that Jesus stands to welcome each one to you and to your kingdom. Lord, if there is someone that is wrestling with that decision, help them to see why shouldn't I be a part of what you have done to experience the freedom and the life that Jesus offered. Help them to see and to respond, we pray, even now as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.